0: Welcome to the teaching ministry at Calvary PSL. Please join lead pastor Mike Williams for the message, Stephen, a message of hope. All right, so the last time we were in the book of Acts, if you remember, I know it's been a few weeks, but Stephen was in a jam. After winning a debate with certain Jews in a certain synagogue in Jerusalem, after he won the debate, all of a sudden Stephen is violently seized and he's brought before the mighty Sanhedrin. The attitude of the Jews who lost the debate was simply this, Stephen, we're mad at you. You showed us up. You embarrassed us. You're coming with us. And they grabbed him, and they took him to the 71 most powerful men in Israel, the Sanhedrin. So false witnesses were also brought into this trial, and these false witnesses accused Stephen of at least two things, so so by way of review, look back at Acts Acts chapter six, verse 13. It says in Acts six, verse 13, and they set up, what kind of witnesses? False. False witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, that's the temple, and the law, that's the law of Moses. And so what were the charges against Stephen? It's very important that you get this right here at the beginning of the message so you understand why Stephen formulates his defense a little later on in the chapter. And so the charges against Stephen were, number one, speaking against the temple, and number two, speaking against the law of Moses. Now in that time, in that culture, those are serious charges. And so as I said before, Stephen is in a jam. He's in trouble. But how many of you guys know that when we're in a jam, the Lord is standing by our side, right? I believe that with all my heart. And God was standing right there with Stephen, his servant. You say, how do you know that? Well, I know that by the last verse that we left off on three weeks ago. Look at verse 15. It says, and gazing at him, so all these unbelieving Jews in the Sanhedrin are gazing at Stephen, who by the way, if you're new to the Bible, was a Jew also, except he accepted Jesus as his Messiah. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council, the Sanhedrin, saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And so when your face glows like the face of an angel, that's a pretty good indication that God is with you. So we're going to pick it up now in verse one of chapter seven. And the high priest, maybe Annas, I really think it's Caiaphas. And the high priest said, looking down his arrogant nose at Stephen, Are these things so? Now, how does Stephen respond? Does he get in the flesh, does he start yelling, does he say, they're liars, they're false witnesses, they're making all this up, they're just mad because I ate their lunch in a debate, on, on, and on, on. Is that how he reacts, yes or no? No. Instead of being in the flesh, Stephen's in the spirit, and he gives them a Bible study. I like that. He just gives them a Bible study, and it's very long, by the way. You think I'm a long-winded preacher. This is very long. We're going to take two weeks to get through this message, and he's going to talk about six men. We're only going to get through two of them in today, and that's Abraham, and that's Joseph. And so are these things so? Verse two. And Stephen said, "Brothers and fathers." See how respectful he's being? Hear me. The God of glory appeared to our Father, who? Abraham. Abraham. when he was in Mesopotamia. Before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. And then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father, that's Tira, if you wanna read it later in Genesis 12, after his father died, God removed him from there into this land, the promised land, the land of Canaan, in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised. Everybody say the word promise. But promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him. Though he had no child, Isaac would not be born until another 25 years. Verse six, and God spoke to this effect, that his offspring, would be sojourners in a land, that's Egypt, think now Exodus, sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. Remember 10 plagues. And after that, they shall come out, think of the Red Sea, and worship me in this place, they ultimately made it with the help of Joshua into the land of promise. Verse eight, and he gave them, or gave him, Abraham, the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the 12 Patriarchs. And so Stephen began his defense here by going back 2,000 years and talking about the man that every Jew respected, and that is Father Abraham. And so in his early years, Abraham and Sarah, they lived down in the city of Ur of the Chaldeans. And so we'll put the map up on the screen for you, in case you're new to the Bible or in case you're new to the Old Testament. And so on the bottom right hand of your screen, If you see a little body of water, just say amen, so I know you're looking at it. That's currently the Persian Gulf, right? Right above there would be Kuwait, modern-day Kuwait, and Iraq. And then look over to the left a little bit from the Persian Gulf, and you see the ancient city of Ur. That's where Abraham and Sarah lived. That would currently be in modern-day Iraq near the uh, Kuwaiti border. And so... While Abraham was still living in Ur, an area filled with paganism, polytheism, idolatry, while he's living in that city, a beautiful thing happened. The God, the only God, the one true God, Yahweh God, revealed himself to Abraham. Now you need to know that God did not reveal himself to Abraham because Abraham was such a good man. No, 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 God revealed himself to Abraham because God is such a good God. This divine revelation that Stephen is referring to in Genesis chapter 12, this divine relationship of the Lord revealing himself to Abraham is an act of sovereign grace, and Abraham in no way at all deserved it. Listen, have you ever heard people say, I'm gonna go find God? I gotta find God as if God is lost. Ladies and gentlemen, God is not lost, we're lost, right? (laughs) Abraham didn't go looking for God as if God is lost. God went looking for Abraham because Abraham was lost. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, said this. Agnostics talk cheerfully of man's search for God, but they might as well talk about the mouse's search for the cat. Have you ever seen a mouse stalking a cat, right? There's a little kitty in the corner sleeping and there's the mouse ready to pounce on the cat. Has anybody ever seen that? No, it doesn't happen. But I think we all have seen cats stalking mice. Have you ever seen a a cat stalking a, a mouse? If you haven't, go to YouTube. I went there yesterday, I saw some really cool videos of cats Stalking mice. Now you know what your pastor does in his study time <laughs> on Saturdays. And so if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, listen, it's not because you searched for him. It's because he searched for you. Specifically, the Father went looking for you. Jesus said in John 6, no man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And so really, it's not because we're so good, it's because he's so good. God searched For you, not to eat you, but to love you and to forgive you and to cleanse you and to make you his son, make you his daughter. How many of you are glad that God found you? I am so glad he found me. So glad. And if you in your heart saying, oh, it's about me finding God or me working to God. Listen, you need to repent of your arrogant heart because that's man-made religion and that road leads to hell. By grace are you saved through faith, and that's not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And so the Lord appeared to Abraham, and he said this in Genesis 12:1, go. Does so everybody say go. go? He may be saying that to some of you today. Not to get up and leave the service right now, but <laughs> to go and do his will. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you. And I'm wondering if Abraham struggled with this a little bit, you know? He he may be thinking a land that he will show me. In other words, he's not gonna show me the land that he wants me to settle in until later? Uh, Is God saying that he wants Sarah and I to pack our bags and, and just start walking? Where? How will we know the way? And so we gotta look at the rest of God's promise. Again, I will make you... A great nation, he says, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Again, I think Abraham may be struggling a little bit. We all struggle, right, we're all human. We still live in this fallen world. We're not home yet, we're not in our glorified bodies. I think he probably was struggling and he's thinking, man, God wants me to leave everything I know, everything that I love. He wants Sarah and I to pack our bags, but he won't tell us where we're going. And now he's saying he's gonna make us into a great nation, but how in the world can Sarah and I become a great nation? We don't even have a son yet. Here's a question you can answer out loud. What did Abraham need in this situation? One word, what is it? Faith. faith. Abraham needed faith that God would keep his promises and that God would show up and come through for him. And faith is exactly what Abraham had because it goes on to say in Genesis 12:4 so Abram went I love that right there so Abram went as the Lord had told him even though he didn't know where to go what does Abraham do he takes a step of faith and he's trusting that God is going to show him the way and that's exactly what the Lord did we go back to our map and we see that they started in Ur of the Chaldeans God tells them I want you to leave your family um, but, you know, he compromised a little. He took his dad, Tira, and his, his nephew, Lot. And that's another sermon for another time. But they made it up to Haran. So they left the modern-day uh, Iraq area. They went all the way north to Haran, which would be modern-day Turkey, right around the northern border of Syria. They lived there for a while. Tira died, his dad. And then, step by step, the Lord led him to Canaan. If you can see in the bottom left-hand Side of your screen, the word Canaan in all caps. Say amen. Amen. Okay, so that's the land of Canaan, the land of the Canaanites who were wicked, idolaters, sacrificing their own kids, sexual perversion, all kind of evil. God would still, because of his merciful heart, give them about 400 years to repent before Joshua would go in and take the land. But nonetheless, God led Abraham and Sarah to the land of Canaan. And by the way, that really, If you want to be technical, it shouldn't say Jerusalem, it should say Salem, because it wouldn't be for another thousand years that David would conquer that city and change its name to Jerusalem. And so they arrived to the land of Canaan. And when they arrived there, God said this to Abraham He said, To your offspring, I will give this land. To your offspring, Abraham, I'm going to give the promised land. And what did Abraham do? He built an altar and he worshiped the Lord. You need to know, ladies and gentlemen, that God honored Abraham's faith to the point that he made it into the New Testament hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Ever heard of it? And so what does the author of Hebrews say? In your New Testament, the author of Hebrews says, by faith, everybody say faith. This is what Stephen's trying to get across to the Sanhedrin. This is why he's preaching this Bible study. Because they think it's all about the law. They think it's all about the temple. No, 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 no. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, look at this, not knowing where he was going. Ladies and gentlemen, sometimes God will call us to take a step of faith without giving us the whole picture. And what do you gotta do? You just need to do what Abraham did. You need to go and trust that he's gonna lead you step by step. I've shared this before, but um, it's kinda like God's will is you with a flashlight in a completely dark room and God gives you the flashlight, the revelation of his Holy Spirit, either through the word of God or through a witness of the Holy Spirit confirmed by elders, and he gives you this flashlight, and all he does is he points it down at your feet. Very rarely does God ever do that. He just does that. And he says, take a step. And you and I have got to take the step. Even though we don't have the whole picture, we got to take the step of faith, trusting that God will come through for us. And when we take the step, That's when, guess what? God shows us the next step that we need to take. And we take, because the Christian life is a step-by-step faith walk. The problem is that some Christians look at the next step and they say, I don't wanna. And they put the flashlight down and they go over here and they spend sometimes years doing their own thing in the darkness and you talk to them. And they're like, I don't know if I believe in God anymore. He never speaks to me. Newsflash: he already spoke to you. You need to get back in line with what he wanted you to do and you need to go back and do what he told you to do and take the next step. And when you do that, then the Holy Spirit begins to speak again and you step by step follow. Does this make sense to you guys? This is the Christian life. As I said earlier, very rarely does he do this because if he does that, we might get scared and run away. I remember when I was 18 years old, I knew the Lord for one year. He called me to be a pastor. I didn't know what in the world to do. I thought that Psalms and Proverbs followed the book of Revelation because somebody gave me a Gideon's Bible and they threw Psalms and Proverbs in the little Bible after Revelation. I didn't know anything about the Bible. But all all I knew was just take the next step. So I went to Bible college. Right Now, if God at 18 would have done this and showed me what I would be doing right now as a 52-year-old, I, I, I would have probably done one of three things. I would have dropped the flashlight and run away. Or two, I would have got a big head thinking, wow, look what I'm gonna be doing. When, how many of you guys know God doesn't use people with big heads? Or number three, I would have said, I, I, I just, I don't really wanna do this. And so God didn't do this, he just did step by step. By step, and as I'm taking these steps of faith, what is he doing? He's humbling me, he's equipping me, so that I can handle what I'm gonna handle later on in life, and he's causing me not to fear, because he always shows up in everything he calls us to do. This is God's, God's way of leading us. And Abraham and Sarah followed God step by step, and eventually he led them to the promised land. So be patient with God. Just take it a step at a time. Just so be obedient at the next step. And so there was another promise that God had to fulfill. Not only would he give his descendants the promised land, but he would make them into a great nation. Now you guys know the story, I don't have time to go through all of it, but initially Abraham, he wanted this covenant promise to be inherited by Ishmael. You remember Hagar, Sarah's handmaid? And so Sarah's not getting pregnant. She says, okay, you know, you can have my handmaid. And so uh, Abraham takes Hagar as wife, and Ishmael's born. And and, and Abraham wants the inheritance, the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant to come through Ishmael and his descendants, but God says, no, I have another plan. My covenant will be established through a son that Sarah will give birth to, Abraham. 90-year-old Sarah. And in Genesis chapter 17, when, God, when Abraham hears that Sarah is gonna have a boy, what does he do? He f- literally says that he falls on the floor and laughs. He's thinking, I'm 100 years old, and Sarah's 90 years old, oh, that Ishmael, he's already born, oh, that Ishmael may live before you. And God says, no. And he, he, here's the thing, they struggled It didn't make sense, but eventually and ultimately, Abraham and Sarah believed God's promise, and Sarah got pregnant at 90. She got pregnant and nine months later gave birth to Isaac. The word Isaac, does anybody remember what the word Isaac means? Laughter. And when you read Genesis 17, Abraham hears from God, Sarah's gonna get pregnant, he laughs. Genesis 18, Sarah's in the tent, she overhears that she's gonna get pregnant, she laughs but who gets the last laugh? The Lord, who always keeps his promises, ladies and gentlemen, even when they seem impossible. Check out again what the author of Hebrews says, therefore, from one man, Abraham, and him as good as dead, he's 100 years old, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. God kept his promise to Abraham and did great things through Abraham and Sarah. And here's the point I want you to get this morning. God will keep his promise to you. And he'll do great things through you. But you gotta take the step of faith. You gotta trust him. And sometimes he'll give you a promise and it'll be years before it actually happens. Abraham was around 75 when he initially made this promise that I'll make your descendants a great nation. He doesn't have Isaac until he's 100. That's 25 years, but guess what? Abraham believed God. And you know what? In year two of this church, God spoke to my heart and said, one day you'll have a Christian school. And I thought it would come a lot earlier than it's coming, but I'm so excited that this summer, we're gonna look across the street And that land will be cleared, and we'll see buildings starting to go up. And God will keep his promise. And listen, if he tarries, thousands of kids will be affected and equipped in a positive way. Take the step of faith. Now, why in the world does Stephen share Abraham's story with the Sanhedrin? Why is he sharing all this? Because he wants to demonstrate how much he knows about the Bible? No, he's, demonst- he's sharing this about Abraham with the Sanhedrin because Abraham was the father of faith and it was all about faith. Listen, what were the charges against Stephen? He speaks against the temple. He speaks against the law. And the Sanhedrin's heads exploded. Why? Because here in A.D., around A.D. 34, everybody say A.D. 34. 34. The Sanhedrin still thinks it's all about the temple and it's all about the law. Keep the law, they would say, if they were standing here today. Keep the law of Moses and you all can earn a right standing before God. By the way, nowhere in the Bible does it ever teach that. In fact, Paul had to refute that in Romans 3, 4, and 5. And so, but this is what they taught. Keep the law of Moses and you can attain a right standing before God. Keep bringing your animal sacrifices to the temple so that those animals, that the animal's blood can, can cover or temporarily atone for your sin. But ladies and gentlemen, Stephen had a different message and his message was all about Abraham and faith. Think this through with me. Abraham was justified by faith. Listen. Right around 18, 1900 BC, 2000, let's say, round it off, 2000 BC, Abraham. Go forward in time, right around 14, 1500 BC, we'll round it off to 1500 BC. Who comes down Mount Sinai with tablets? Moses. Abraham, 500 years or so. Moses, go another 500 years, right around 900,000, we'll round it off to 1000. Here you have David and Solomon, and Solomon builds the temple. Listen, Abraham was justified by faith 500 years before the law and before the tabernacle. And Abraham was justified by faith 1,000 years before there ever was a temple. Are you guys understanding why Stephen is sharing this to the Sanhedrin? Want wanted somebody to say amen that you're, you're, you're getting this and you're understanding this. Now, don't misunderstand me. Did the law have its place under the old covenant? Yes or no? Yes. yes, yes, the law had its place. Not for us to keep the law and attain a right standing before God, no. The law was given to show us our sin and need for a savior. When you read the 10 Commandments, if you read the 10 Commandments and you say, I've kept these from my youth, and I believe God will accept me because I'm so good. You are self-righteous, and you're in a lot of trouble. But if you read the 10 Commandments and you say, God, have mercy on my soul, I'm a sinner and I need a savior, then the law is working its purpose in your life. The law had a purpose under the old covenant. Did the temple have a purpose under the old covenant? Yes. Those animals did temporarily atone for sin, but we're now in AD 34. Christ has come, the Lamb of God, who listen to this, doesn't just cover our sin, he takes away our sin. And Jesus Christ, hung the perfect sacrifice, and through that perfect sacrifice, he initiated a new covenant, not based on the blood of bulls and goats that was offered in a physical temple, but based on his own blood that he presented to the Father in the heavenly temple, and the veil was torn, and God says, come on in, I love you, I'll embrace you. It's about faith. Faith, everybody say faith. Faith. Stop with the works. Stop thinking you're so good and you have to attain your position before God. That will damn your soul to hell. You have to have this mindset, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. And you need to look at Christ and say, your death was sufficient for the, for the forgiveness and payment of all my sins and you rose again the third day and I'm clinging to you, Christ, alone. And then the Holy Spirit will come inside of you and change your life. It's not religion, it's relationship. And if Christ died once for all, why did they still need a temple? If Christ died once for all, why did they still need sacrifices? How sad that the Sanhedrin rejected this message. As far as we know, they continued to idolize their temple until the year AD 70, when the Romans came and burnt it and tore it down. Here's your next point. Stephen wanted the Jews to stop focusing on the temple and start focusing on who? Jesus Christ. I'm out of breath, I gotta start working out again. (laughs) Jesus, focus on Jesus. Don't focus on holy places. What do so many religious people do today? They focus on holy places, holy objects, temples. Shrines so-called. When we were in Israel, we went to a church called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And while we were there, and by the way, it took us like 20 minutes to get in there because it's like a rock concert trying to get into that church. But when we finally got there, we saw a number of different sites. This is the area where Jesus was believed to be crucified and buried. But that stone right there is called the Stone of Anointing, the Stone of Unction. And I happened to get a little snapshot as I was walking by. But you say, well, what are those people doing? Well, this is the stone that they believe that Jesus' body was prepared for burial. That they actually laid his body on this stone and they prepared it, they anointed it. So this is called the stone of anointing or the stone of unction. What they're doing is they're taking out their handkerchiefs, their pictures, their crosses, and they're trying, listen to this, to transfer the anointing from the stone to their object. It broke my heart. Now, I'm not gonna stand there and do this, like some self-righteous Pharisee, but I'm gonna, my heart breaks. Why? Because is this how you receive the anointing or the unction? No, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. It's about turning to Christ and faith and surrendering your life to Jesus and then the Holy Spirit of God comes inside of you. Ladies and gentlemen, it's not about so-called holy places or temples or shrines or holy objects. It's about the Holy Spirit, Christ in you. When we go to the Holy Land, we don't recognize holy places and say our prayers at the holy places. No, what we do is we go to the Holy Land, we go to archeological sites and we go to Um, different sites and we match the Bible story with the place in order to increase our faith and our knowledge of the word of God. And so, it's not about temples or shrines or holy places, it's about faith in Christ who lives in our hearts. Look at verse nine now. And so, he's still preaching to the Sanhedrin. He says in verse nine, if you're looking at Acts 7, 9, say amen. And the patriarchs, okay, so you have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. That's the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs, the 12 sons of Jacob, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. The 12 patriarchs, Stephen is saying to the Sanhedrin, the 12 sons of Jacob could find no food. Verse 12, but when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit, and on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. Not the first visit, the second visit. And Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. And so Stephen now turns his attention from Abraham to Joseph, whose story can be found in Genesis 37 through 50, now, obviously, we don't have time to go through all of that, so I'm just gonna give you the fast-forward version of Joseph's story. Again, Stephen is not sharing this with the Sanhedrin to demonstrate how much Bible knowledge he has. There's a reason, and you'll see the reason probably sooner than later. All right, so let me give you the fast-forward version here. Joseph was one of, the, one of Jacob's 12 sons, and Jacob, my goodness, Jacob loved Joseph so very much. You see, Joseph was the beloved son of his father. His father loved him so much, he bought him or he made him a coat of many colors. He said, here, son, wear this. And that caused his 10 big brothers to become jealous of him and envious of him. You see, Joseph's brothers hated him. To make matters worse, Joseph had a dream and he decides in his youthful Probably ignorance He decides to share these dreams with his brothers. And so one of the dreams, you remember, he says, "Guys, we were all out, you know in my dream, and we were binding sheaves, and all of a sudden, my sheaf stood up, and all of your sheaves surrounded my sheaf, and all your sheaves, big brothers, bowed down to me." How do you think the brothers reacted to that? You think you're going to rule over us? Go take a hike. You see, Joseph's brothers rejected his claims of superiority. So one day, his, his brothers went to feed his father's flock in Shechem, but they were delayed in their return. And so Jacob, the father, sent Joseph, the son, to go find the brothers. You see, the father sent the son to seek for his brothers. And when the brothers saw uh, Joseph, coming with his coat of many colors, they said, look, there's the dreamer. Let's kill him and throw his body into a pit. You see, Joseph's brothers plotted to kill him. Now, Of course, as the story goes on, they didn't kill him. They sold him for 20 shekels of silver to a band of Ishmaelites who were heading down to Egypt. You see, Joseph was sold out of envy And they took his coat of many colors after Joseph is riding off in the sunset as a prisoner of the Ishmaelites. They take his coat of many colors. How are we gonna explain this to dad? They sacrifice a goat and they put goat's blood all over his coat of many colors. And they say, look, dad. And the dad weeps and says, my son has been killed by a wild animal. In the meantime, Joseph and the Ishmaelites arrive in Egypt and they sell Joseph to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh. And Joseph becomes a slave in Potiphar's house. Because Joseph walked with the Lord, listen to this, he walked with the Lord, he had a tight relationship with the Lord, so the Lord blessed him. Everything, it was kinda like everything this kid touched turned to gold. And so Potiphar's like, hey, I want some of that. And he put him in charge of his whole house. And so Joseph is now in charge as a servant of Potiphar's house. Now you need to know that Joseph, if you're new to the Bible, he was a handsome guy. And his, Um, uh, Potiphar's wife, Mrs. Potiphar. The Bible says she cast longing eyes on him. The interpretation of that is what she was attracted to him. And she actually tried to seduce him while her husband was away. But Joseph was a man of character and he would not give in to temptation. No matter how beautiful Potiphar's wife was, he resolved in his heart, I will not sin against the Lord. I will do what's right, you see. Joseph was tempted, yet without sin. And the woman became so desperate, one day her husband left, she became so desperate, she grabbed Joseph's coat, and she yells, lie with me. She was the first desperate housewife, by the way. (laughs) Lie with me. And what did Joseph do? Guys, listen, if, if you're a guy in the room, say amen. He ran. Stop trying to stand up to sexual sin. Stop trying to stand up to pornography, thinking that you can overcome it in your own strength. Listen, guys, run. And keep running for the rest of your life. Joseph ran away and left his coat with her and she was so upset, she scorned. And how many of you ever heard the the, the saying, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned? She she goes to Potiphar, he raped me. He raped me. And so Potiphar throws him in prison. You see, Joseph suffered for sins he didn't commit. And he goes to prison. And once again, God's hand of blessing is upon him. Everything he touches turns to gold. And so soon he becomes the head of the prison. And that's where he meets Pharaoh's butler and baker who ticked off Pharaoh and got thrown into the slammer. And the butler and baker each have a dream. I'm going really fast, right? Through this, all this. They each have a dream and Joseph's like, I can, I can interpret your dream with God's help. So it was good news for the butler, bad news for the baker. He said, butler, you're gonna be restored to your position with Pharaoh. Baker, not so good with you, you're gonna get hung. And exactly like Joseph said, it happened. But Joseph told the, baker, the butler before he left prison, he's like, hey man, talk to Pharaoh. Tell him about me, I'm, I'm innocent, I shouldn't be here. But the butler forgot Joseph. Two years later, By the way, this is why I don't buy in to the TV preachers and the health, wealth, prosperity gospel. The reason why is because Joseph is a godly man. He is blessed, but he's in prison. He's suffering, and ladies and gentlemen, sometimes God will use suffering to conform you into the image of Christ. Don't believe everything you see on TV. And two years later, all of a sudden, Pharaoh has a dream, he can't interpret it, and the butler, Oh yeah, Joseph, Pharaoh, I know a guy a long time ago, I met him in prison, he can interpret your dream. And Pharaoh's like, well, bring him in. And so Joseph gets cleaned up, he shaves his beard, he puts on nice clothes, he walks. Pharaoh tells him the dream, he interprets the dream. Pharaoh, there's gonna be a big seven years of plenty that's gonna come upon Egypt, but that's gonna be followed by seven years of famine. And so we gotta start to prepare. And Pharaoh said, you the man, and he put him in charge second in charge of the kingdom. You see, Joseph was elevated to the right hand of power. And Pharaoh was so pleased with Joseph, he gave him his own daughter to be his wife. You see, Joseph was given a Gentile bride The seven years of plenty passed and the seven years of famine came. People started to starve. So everybody in Egypt came to Joseph. Not only that, but people around the world came to Egypt, to Joseph, to get grain. You see, Joseph became a savior for the world. And eventually his brothers also came from Canaan to Egypt looking for grain. And when they came before this great ruler, what did the 10 big brothers do? they bowed down to Joseph, not knowing who he was, but just like Joseph had dreamt 20 years earlier. They bowed down, they didn't recognize him. You see, Joseph's brothers didn't recognize him the first time, but during their second visit to Egypt, he reveals himself, I am Joseph, and they got it the second time around. So because of how badly uh, they had treated uh, Joseph, the brothers thought, we're dead, he's gonna kill us. But instead of that, Joseph embraces them, weeps over them, and he forgives them. You see, Joseph forgave his brothers and restored their relationship with him. Why in the world would Stephen share this message about Joseph with the Sanhedrin? I think it's because of the striking similarities between Joseph. If you're with me, say amen. amen. Between Joseph and someone, the Sanhedrin needed to bow their knee to. You see, all unbelieving Jews in the first century in the Sanhedrin—they're a type. Well, I'm sorry, Joseph's brothers are a type of the unbelieving Jews. But who is Joseph a type of? You tell me. Jesus Christ. You see, just like. Joseph, Jesus was the beloved son of his father. His brothers hated him and rejected his claims. The father sent him to seek for his brothers, but what did the brothers do? They plotted to kill him. And just like Joseph, Jesus was sold out of envy. He was tempted yet without sin. He suffered for sins he didn't commit, and he was elevated to the right hand of power. And just like Joseph, Jesus was given a Gentile bride. How many of you guys are here? You're Gentile and you're happy about that point. I am so glad. I am so glad we've been grafted in. We've been grafted in, ladies and gentlemen. We are sons and daughters of Abraham, the father of faith. Please read your Bible so all this stuff connects in your heart. And just like Joseph, Jesus became the savior of the world, his brothers didn't recognize him the first time, but the second time, he will forgive his brothers, his Jewish brothers, all Israel will be saved, right? Isn't that what Paul says in Romans nine? He will forgive his brothers and restore their relationship. And so just as Joseph's brothers bowed the knee to him, so the Sanhedrin needed to bow their knee to Jesus Christ. And I want to leave you with this verse. Philippians chapter 2 verse 9. Speaking of Jesus, Paul writes, "Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name." So that at the name of Jesus, everybody say Jesus. Jesus. At the name of Jesus, listen to this. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The question is, have you bowed your knee? The question is, have you bowed your knee to Jesus Christ? You say, everything's wrong in my life. Everything is, 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 is topsy-turvy. I, I can't figure life out. I don't know what's going on. There's an answer and it's not in the bookstore it's the mall. The answer is Jesus. His name is above every name. And if you bow your knee in this life, you surrender your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, everything will make sense. Everything will not be perfect. There'll still be hardship and, and suffering, but listen, instead of you being the center or me being the center, Christ will take center place and all will be well both in time and eternity, amen? Give your life to Jesus. And so the way we're gonna end the service is I'm gonna ask the prayer partners to come on forward right now, and the pastors and elders as well. And if you're here today and you need to give your life to Jesus, listen, no one's gonna judge you in this place, but we wanna help you. All of us were exactly where you were at one point in our lives. Lost, sinners, in need of a savior. And so if you'd like to give your life to Christ, we would love to talk to you, and one of the elders or pastors in the middle uh, would love to be able to share with you for a few minutes right after our closing prayer. So all you have to do is come forward. You say, well, you know, <laughs> I don't know if I wanna do that. Listen, just, just do it. You'll never regret it. I wanna ask everybody here, all of those here that gave, have given your life to Jesus, was it worth it? Yes. Yes. Yes.